Hello and welcome to I Migrate the Podcast, the show where we'll be sharing the stories and experiences of people who have migrated to the UK from countries across the world. Whether they are escaping conflict in search of education opportunities or looking for adventure, they all share the similar challenge of having to assimilate to a new country and culture. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Halima. Halima actually didn't migrate to the UK. Halima's parents did, and I just thought today it would be really interesting to have a conversation with somebody who's first generation and her parents came from India and just find out more about that. Um, Halima, welcome. Thank you and welcome. Uh, could you introduce yourself to us, please? So my name is Halima Malik. I'm an Indian Muslim, first generation from um, migrated parents from India, Gujarat. Halima, uh, for somebody who maybe has never been to India oh no, at the moment, I'm just asking you because it's through your parents. Did you ever visit India? Actually, I visited India when I was one years old. I was sent over by both my parents because um, my mother was expecting her fifth child. So I was there for about three years, two and a half, three years. But I don't actually have much memory of India as such, just because I was so little when I, when I had travelled. From what you heard from your parents, you know, growing up, what did they tell you about India? Go on. I think it wasn't so much what they told us, but how we lived. My parents tried very, very hard to hold on to their culture. I think especially being one of five daughters, my father was very afraid that the British culture and the British system, as well as the British language, was going to take over. So we lived an extremely controlled very sheltered life. We had our life as kids that went out to school, but then when we went home, it was very, very different. We weren't allowed to speak English in our house. We were only allowed to speak our mother tongue. And now, 45 years later, I'm very grateful for that because my children don't have their mother tongue. They've lost their, their that language. I speak three languages. So even though we're from Gujarat, we speak like an Urdu Hindi slang and our neighbours and the community of Gloucester at the time were all Gujarati. So we had moved down from London where I was initially born. So Gujarati was the main language in the Indian culture of Gloucester. So we picked, Gloucester, uh, we picked up Gujarati, sorry. And I know Hindi, I know Urdu and I know bits of Punjabi. But whereas my children even though they have Indian, um, one Indian father and one, my younger two have a British as well as a Pakistani father, they can only speak in English because we only talk English now. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that is, that is a shame, isn't it's, it? It's, that is, yeah. It's such a shame, such a shame because my daughter actually went to India, I think, uh, three years ago with my sister. She could understand Mm. what my family was saying to her, but she couldn't converse with them. So my sister became like the translator in between mm. her and, and the family back in India. So now at the time, what we thought was a very controlled and limited um, childhood by our parents, 
But now as a mother and as an adult, it wasn't. They were really trying to give us those those what was what belonged to us you know what was mm. natural to them and if they had just let us naturally talk english at home etc cetera, etc cetera, maybe we wouldn't have kept to our culture and we would have we my generation so me and my mm. siblings might have lost our culture mm. just the way now our children are starting to lose mm. more and more mm. of their culture mm. so now i wish if my parents were alive i could have said you know thank you thank you for that oh. upbringing mm-hmm. well just going back to you know um you say your parents uh, were born in india why did they come to the uk did you ever talk about yeah, that so my father was from a very poor um background uh, my mother wasn't my mother was not from a rich background but from sort of a well to do they had land etc and you know they were quite well off um my father lost both his parents by the time he was a teenager and when partition happened two of his brothers had migrated into pakistan and he had one younger brother and one elder brother and the opportunity came that a few people from his village had moved to england because at the time because england had the connection with india because of the raj etc they were asking for migrants um from india to come and work on trains etc etc so the opportunity came up and my father had a friend who initially moved to england and he somehow i'm not sure the full story let my father know that there's an opportunity for him to move the main reason for my father to move was to have a better life for his family in india and to support them better financially at the time he was in his mid 20s my father was quite educated considering he was from a very poor background he knew english he knew farsi he could speak and write urdu and gujarati he had worked in um a local medics and he was sort of selling medicine etc and this opportunity came up but he couldn't afford the ticket because he was so poor so the story was he went to see his father's sister who was a little bit well off and mentioned to her that he wants to visit england and move to england so she made a deal with him and the deal was he has to marry her daughter Ooh. he has to marry her daughter which was his first cousin and she will lend him the money so he did but they only were married in name they hadn't lived as a couple i'm not sure if this marriage happened after he had moved to england because in those days you could get married by letter mm-hmm. so he moved to england and something happened family politics and they separated mm-hmm. um they got separated like i said they'd never lived like husband and wife so it wasn't too bad and then my dad's sister um met my mum's family who lived in the same village as my parents like saying you're talking gloucester mm. and sent a proposal for my mother my mother at the time was only 16 so i would say she was 15 at the time and my father was already in england he was must have been around that time 27 my grandparents said no to the proposal because mm. they didn't want to send my mum to england mm. but in those days a son-in-law has a very high prestige in your family so my aunt sent the first proposal through my mum's brother-in-law and my grandparents declined it and then she went back to him so he went back to his they were his father-in-law and mother-in-law 
And my grandparents couldn't say no because the Indian culture, not the Muslim culture, the Indian culture was the son-in-law. Like I said, mm. it's on, you, know, you put them on a real high platform. Mm. So uh, my grandparents agreed. My mother came home from school one day and the house was packed and she was a bit like shocked, like what's going on? And then um, her sister, whose husband had sent the proposal, so the sister said, you know, there's an outfit for you, go get ready, it's your wedding day. So she got married. Uh, my father was in England, so they somehow did some sort of, I don't, I really wish now I knew the whole story, but they had got married somehow through letter or telegram or something, I think it was in those <laughs> days. So they got married and she got sent off on a plane first time, never left her village unless it was, you know, local towns and um, got flown over to England at the age of 16. And in those days, I still remember my mom saying that when a plane landed, you could see people and they would come and welcome you. And when mm. you came off the aeroplane, they could see it's very different to now. I mean, you're talking, uh, my brother is 52. So you're talking about 53, 54 years ago. Mm. And so she knew some of the people who had come to greet her. In those days, there was like a big van load and everybody got very excited. So they all went and it was like a day out. And she met um, my dad. So he's, he's sort of related to my father, but my mother knew him because they're all from the same village. Mm. And she said to him, she must have said hello and salams, et cetera, et cetera. And then she goes, there's some boy who's waving at me from the distance. And my uncle goes to her in our language, which means, dhari means your husband. So that's, that's your husband. Mm. And that's the first time she met my dad. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating? What the <laughs> hell, mate? Like, come on. I'm not sure if it's fascinating. That is, like, no. It's a shock to the system. It is a shock. But as well, as you say, for me, when you're talking about this proposal, yeah. I'm thinking, so so people just used to propose yeah, through letter, yeah. and then that is an acceptable way to say. Well, no, my brother, my mum's brother-in-law was in India, so they mm. proposed through verbally, but mm. the marriage was done through oh. um, what what yeah. like telegram? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, telegram. Yeah, that's how they did it. Wow. Because a lot of people, from my knowledge, from my parents' stories. A lot of men had already moved to England mm, mm. and then they got married. And usually in those days, the family of the father or the daughter, the sorry, the, the groom or the bride, mm. the marriage was decided between the parents mm. and the children were just told, this mm. is who mm. you're marrying. Mm. Mm. So they could just have a telegram marriage. And these poor women who hadn't a clue, who'd never left their country or probably didn't want to leave mm. their town. Like my mother didn't want to leave India. Mm. She was one of five children. And my mother was very fair and had green eyes and was very delicate. We say Nazuk. So in her family, she was the delicate child. Mm. And also my grandfather's favorite child because of that. Mm. And she didn't want to leave. And I'm sure there's millions of women in the same situation in those days who didn't want to, but the parents thinking, that they will have a better and brighter future, got their daughters married off and basically shipped them off to another town or, you know, complete different place in England or in the world, mm. not just England, mm. America, wherever. Mm. Mm. And that's how they met their husbands. 
In the past podcast, one of the things that we've spoken about is that the perception that the UK was a land of riches. And, you know, so people expected to come and, you know, make it. Did your parents feel like yeah, that? You I know, think... you're saying your mom was came when she was 16. And... I think not so much for my mom, mm-hmm. um, because she didn't come with the idea of bettering her life. She mm-hmm. came because she got married. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for my father, yes, I think for him, he thought it would be an easier life and he would be able to support himself as well as his family in India, as well as his family in Pakistan. But it was very hard. I mean, he worked nonstop, you know, 12, 14 hour shifts, seven days a week. And not only did he have to then support his wife and my mother got pregnant as soon as she came and had 10 pregnancies in 13 years, seven of us survived. So not only now did he have seven mouths to feed one every single year, but he also still had to support this family back home. But then you've also got the clash of the cultures, the clash of the language, the clash of the Western world. And nobody teaches you this because that's not what you see when you're moving. You see a better financial life. So for you as kids, what do you remember most um, when we're talking about a clash of culture when you're growing up? Because you've already mentioned a little bit about it, you know, the, the way your parents wanted you not to lose your culture. So what do you, from your point of view, do you remember most that was really significant thinking about, okay, this was me at home and this is me at school? Yeah, so for us, for one thing, it was the language. So I personally, not so much my sisters, but I really suffered with the English language because we were only speaking Urdu or Gujarati at home. And then to sort of change that concept every time you go to school and understand, but also not having the parents who could support you through your education. So that was a big barrier. Secondly, the dress code. We used to go to school with oil in our hair and pigtails and get laughed at. But you want you want to be like your peers, you know, you want to be like the English girls and not have oil in your hair and be able to wear, you know, a skirt and, you know, a shirt without wearing trousers underneath, you know. So all of these kind of things, especially when we became teenagers and we went for days out with the school, we used to borrow English clothes. We didn't have our own English clothes. So luckily I had a friend who was allowed to wear English clothes, like jeans and stuff. So funny to call them English clothes. But at the time, that's what it felt like, that we were wearing English clothes and not our, you know, show our kameez, etc. And we were changing in the toilets when we got to school into the so-called English clothes, changing back on our way home, sometimes in the coach, and then going back home in the clothes we'd left that morning. So my parents never knew. So was that just to help you to fit in? Yes, it was. It was literally to fit in, but also almost, but there was one I remember, it wasn't so much when I was in my junior school, but when I was in my secondary school, going to a girl's school and you're doing PE, my mother didn't let her shave our legs, which I can understand because our legs are always covered being, you know, Muslims as well. You don't really see many Muslim women. But when you're getting ready for PE and you've got hairy legs and you're getting laughed at, but I was so scared to shave my legs because of getting told off by my mother. So it was these little things that seemed very little, but as a teenager, they seemed very big for me at that time. And I'm sure for a lot more girls who was, you know, who came from maybe more cultural backgrounds. So there was this sort of 
this clash between mm. between the cultures, but also like they would talk about English programs. We were only allowed to watch Bollywood in our house. We weren't allowed to watch anything. Luckily, I've got an elder brother who's six years older than me and he had his own bedroom with a black and white TV. So stuff like Blind Date and Top of the Pops, we used to sneakingly watch in his room when he was at work and while my father was out. But downstairs in the main like family living room, we only watched Indian movies. Very rarely did we watch some black and white movies like to do with Robert Redford or Clint Eastwood or stuff that was very clean. And my father didn't think it was going to influence us. But like Blind Date, we were fascinating, but there was no, my dad would have, well, yeah. Comment <laughs> 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 if he knew we were sneaking the, watching Blind Date. So do you get the sense that your parents ever had, you know, um, they had to try so hard to assimilate or perhaps, you know, in within work with the neighbors? Because when you're saying when everything, you know, up to the program you're watching, it was encouraged that you watched everything that was culturally fitting for you. Do you feel now, you know, and reflecting, because I'm, I'm, I mean, the question would be better asked to your parents, but reflecting back, do you think that they had difficulty assimilating with the culture, English culture? I don't know. I think from the stories I remember, I mean, I was five when we moved mm. to Gloucester, mm. so I don't remember much of my London life and two, mm. two and a half years of that I was in India. But in Gloucester, most of the people on our street were Muslims. Mm. Or we had black families who we really got on really well with. And they sort of had that sort of similar mm. culture anyway. Mm. And we had a beautiful, amazingly lovely white family who lived two doors away. And they loved coming to our house because my mother would make fresh chapati mm. every day. Mm. They would come in and play with us in the garden. And my mother would give us chapati with butter and sugar. And then they would come, the four of them, and they would wait and have chapati and stuff. So no, because... Even though we mixed with them, we didn't socialize with them. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Mm. So you went mm. to school, you mm. had your friendships, mm. but that wasn't your social circle. Mm. Your social circle was your Muslim friends or your Muslim neighbors or your family. We didn't have like how my children now go on the weekend, my younger two, and meet up with their school friends get a bus and go to Newant or wherever Heinem. We didn't have that. And how has that influenced you as a person, not having that? For me, I've always been a, a person who's very fascinated by each and everybody. And Islam for me as a Muslim is a religion of humanity and human. So for me, every human is just as important as the human next to you. So I was always very intrigued and I always had a lot of white friends and a lot of black friends and Hindu friends. And I was always fat fascinated, wanting to know more and more. And as I got older and had a bit more freedom, not a lot, but enough in school and to do other things, I started mixing with the bigger community. And I think that's where I am now, especially in my work. And for my children, as they were growing up, so I have a 24, 21 year old, a 14 and 11 year old. I made sure since they were young, we communicated and socialized with everybody and anybody. So I still have a lot of my English friends who come over to mine. We go to theirs. My sisters, we all married into different cultures as well. So for me, this is what life 
is about and this is what human is being about. But I sort of subconsciously took that decision that I want my children to be free thinking and to be able to live a very full life and not this controlled life just in their Asian community. Because for me, that's not what life is about. I remember when we first met and at your fantastic exhibition, this is back, you exhibiting at Studio 18 in Stroud. You gave us a lift back. Oh, God, yes, yes. Now I know. Sorry, my memory's really crap. Yeah. And you're talking to us and I just thought, wow, you know, I really want to know more about this person. He was like, oh, no, I need to know more about Halima. And you're telling us, you know, about you getting married. Yes. So... Okay, so I was 19 and I had my first proposal. Um, it wasn't an arranged marriage. It wasn't like my parents' marriage where I've been told there's a proposal and you're marrying this guy. It was somebody has approached my parents. They're looking for somebody for their son. Um, he was originally from Bolton and my parents are like, meet him, you don't know. But I never really had any understanding of relationships, etc., or how maybe to talk to men. And at the time, I was very naive for a 19-year-old, extremely naive. I sort of felt that getting married would give me a better life, maybe a bit more freedom than I had under my father's roof, because my father was very, very strict. I guess having five daughters, you know, probably made him more so like that. So um, I had this proposal. I spoke to him for about 20 minutes, obviously found him attractive. But what that meant at the time now, thinking back, I don't really know because I didn't have anything to base it on apart from movie stars, maybe. And my only question to him at the time was, was he racist? That was like the, my, my main thing in my life that cannot be with a man who's, who's racist because Indians are very racist generally just based on color, you know, a fairer Asian or a, a darker Asian. And, you know, that's how they sort of stigmatize beauty. I, I think they get that, you know, in all cultures and communities. Mm. But for me, like I said, my religion teaches me that God created everybody. So you cannot be racist. You just, you can't. And my religion, I differentiate from my culture to my religion. And my religion is what leads me and guides me and teaches me. And he said, no, what he understood himself by that question, God knows, you know. Mm. So we got married. It ended about five and a half, six years later after I had two children. I think the main reason was we just weren't compatible. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have enough understanding or guidance, I guess, from my parents or even my sisters who were very young, even though they'd both got married, to make me or sit me down and say, what are you looking for in a partner? <laughs> for me, he wasn't racist and I was going to have more freedom. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> That's what I based my whole life's decision in 20 minutes. Like, God forbid, there's no way I would let my daughter do that. And I would always guide her and, you know, say to her, think about it, talk to them, see what you want, what you don't want. But at the time, it was just sort of expected without the pressure that you are now going to be 20, you need to get married because you've got a 18-year-old sister and a 17-year-old sister waiting still to get married. So it was just done. It was just a thing. So was the 
now reflecting back, is this something that you're saying your your parents were looking for sort of some sort of security for yeah. somebody to take care of you and knowing that you are not really take care but protect you and be safe? I think I don't know if it's so much protection and safe, but because I'm one of five sisters, I think for my father, he knew that once I hit twenty, my younger sister is nineteen. And in those days, getting married between the age of 18 and 21 was the norm. So in his head, well, that's the third daughter now married and gone. But mate, there's still two bloody left, you know. So for them, it was just, this is what we need to do. We weren't encouraged to further our education. You know, we were, we did, I did up to A-levels and I wanted to go university and et cetera. But, you know, it just wasn't allowed. It just wasn't a conversation you could have with my dad. And my mother just did, as was expected from an Indian wife at that time, not anymore, but at that time. So the next thing was, well, I might as well bloody get married, right? What else is there to do? There was no opportunities in my household, not every household, but my household was the norm for many Indian at that time. So I think a lot of young girls got married thinking, well, this is what's expected and they're going to start a family and become a mother. And what else is there? Because there's no education. There's no then going to university or further education. I mean, I worked, but it was a small job just, you know, in a school. It wasn't, you know, I wanted the world at the age of 19. Yeah, you said, yeah, one of the uh, reasons you based your decision was that freedom. Yeah. So what what did you feel like not having it? You're thinking, oh, I want freedom. So what was life like for you? Well, freedom, like to go to town by myself. We weren't allowed. My father didn't allow us to go to town. Why do you think that? I think it was because he was worried about the influence, maybe us getting involved with boys. His thinking was obviously he was protecting us. And I do truly believe in his heart. He felt he was protecting us. But to us, he was limiting us. And I think my decision to get married to somebody based on two questions was because I was so protected from the outside world that I didn't know what I wanted. So did you hold any resentments as a teenager? No, because. You know, my two sisters had gone through it. I had gone through it. I did when my younger sister started growing up. So my younger sister rebelled, decided she's going to uni if my younger... So there's one elder brother and then there's five sisters and then there's a younger brother. So there's like a sandwich of us and I'm right in the middle. I'm, I, I've got middle child syndrome. It's probably obvious. So I have two sisters and a brother, two sisters and a brother. And... I wasn't noticed much as a child. So when I went out, I used to make a lot of noise. And this is maybe why I am the way I am, a lot of noise a lot of the time. But she rebelled because my younger brother was allowed to go out, um, go to town, even go to university. So she put her foot down with my parents and said, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And I clap her for that. But it's taken six children to get to that stage where somebody has enough balls or guts, whatever you want to call it, to be able to express that. But me and my oldest siblings, we didn't. Mm. And for us, it was just a norm. You didn't question it. And it was almost like exciting. Oh, my God, I'm getting married. What the hell, mate? What does marriage mean? No, like 
But to us, it was, and we'd watched a lot of Bollywood movies, you know, so we're thinking we're going to be dancing in the rain and somebody's going to be twirling with us around the blinking trees. No, mate, there's none of that. Let's get married. You get pregnant. You're in a bloody kitchen, cook and clean. You know, so we had an idea. I had this amazing idea in my head. And I'm not saying that my marriage wasn't amazing. It wasn't completely bad, but it wasn't the picture I had. So do you think you were sold the, as a Bollywood film yeah. too much? Yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Wait, that, 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 that window smashed very quickly. So years later, what's your relationship now with your Indian culture versus the English culture? Um, Indian culture, not much mm-hmm. in the sense... Food, yes. Food, we're very still. I still keep to my Indian culture. Food, mm. um, clothes when it comes to celebrations. We still do a lot of dancing around Bollywood, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But my religion comes first and foremost, even if my kids. And for me, the main thing is, is I bring up my kids to respect every culture and every creed and every community. And that when they go out, somebody looks at them and says, you know, they're they're good humans and they're good Muslims. And for me, that's the main thing. If I can have put that seed in my children, and especially even for myself, when I go out, I wear my hijab, that's my crown, because I want somebody to see me and say, God, that little thing who's a Muslim and, you know, she's gobby and got a gob on her and loud and whatever, but She's a nice human. Alima, I know in December I came to one of your fantastic oh, thank you, cheese book events. And you're doing quite a lot of work uh, with the community at the moment. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? What's part you to get involved? And, you know, because as you said, your childhood is very different, very, or oh, you can't do this and contained. But now you're out there. I think for me, a lot of it was I was always told what to do as a child. And mentally, that's really stuck in my head, this controlled thing. And I don't want to be controlled. And I feel like it's very normal for for a lot of women, not just of the Indian community, mm-hmm. just generally, culturally as well. So when this opportunity came up that I could co-create my own um, project and I decided to do poetry and textiles, and we had seven women on the poetry side and 25 women on the textile side of all communities. They weren't just Muslims. They weren't just Asians. Mm. They weren't um, of just religious beliefs. So we put everybody together and created this beautiful tapestry piece as well as this project called She Spoke, which is still running after two years. Uh, my father was a poet and he was a singer and he used to travel nationally to do this. So a part of me, it was so my father felt proud. I almost felt like I didn't live up to my father's expectations. Unfortunately, he's not around now to see what I've achieved. But for me, it was to give a woman a voice because I have now been given this voice, this freedom to express myself however I want. And I use it, as you know, mm. all the time. But for the, for the good, you know, I don't use it in a, in a negative manner, but it is to express and I feel like the time has come now for women, especially women of culture, to use their voices and to show people that we are more than just women who are covered up. 
or we are more than just mothers or wives or women who go out to work. We have this life, you know, we have this almost enthusiasm to be there. And I have this enthusiasm to be there and out there as much as possible. But I feel like I'm the seed that's helping other women who probably wouldn't have been able to express themselves. And because the community knows me and I have a good relationship with all the communities, that's the black community, the women in the churches, the Muslim community, the Indian communities. I feel like my role now in life is to get more and more women to say, you know, there is more to us. Mm. And now showing them that they can be part of these community groups or these poetry groups or commissioned art pieces. And there is platform out there and people want to hear their stories. Mm. This mm. is the thing mm. now. People want to hear these mm. stories. Mm. But also it's to give my daughter and her generation, as well as my sons, to look at us and say, God, you know what? There's a lot more to them than what they do inside the house. Mm, mm, we, lead, mm. we lead communities. We lead, you know, every, we, women are leaders mm. in all walks of life. Mm. Even a man can't be successful unless he's got a, a strong woman behind him. And for me, this is to show everybody that first and foremost, we deserve respect. Mm. But we also have our own character and personality and you know, let's show it off. Fantastic. That is, that's, I totally agree. And, you know, you've put really, really fantastic work out there. But do you believe that you've gained from being the first generation child and having to balance with these different cultures and build sort of your own identity in itself? It's, it's been tough because you, you're always, you're always on the back of your head as a child. It was always like, if I do this, what is the community going to think? If I wear this, what is my dad's friend going to think? I mean, I remember once I was walking down the street and I spoke to a boy who I used to go junior school with. Um, and I just met him randomly, said hello. By the time I got home, my father already knew that I was saying hello and he was questioning me. And I'm like, you know, but this is what it was like. So how, you were. How did that happen? Because they didn't this, have mobile phones then. No, <laughs> but obviously somebody saw me and somebody saw Mr. Malik and it was concerned. You know, this is what the community was like. Obviously, the community is much bigger now and you, everybody doesn't know everybody. But this, what is, this is what it was like. And, you know, if I went out in the streets and wore a pair of jeans that my parents didn't know because I changed in the toilets or something, I was always scared somebody would see me who knew my parents. So now. I have all of this freedom because I'm older and obviously, you know, I've been married and divorced, not just once, but twice. And for me, this is saying to people, yes, you know, I have lived, but I'm not ashamed. And is to teach the younger generation that, yeah, you have morals and we have certain principles for our religion, et cetera, et cetera. But if God is there and he's so loving and caring and so forgiving then why are we as humans judgmental so for me now everything I do and I express is to show people that I do live in the realms of my religion but I also have been given the freedom of choice and the freedom of my voice to use it and it's made me that childhood that upbringing and having this very controlling father and a lot of it went into my other relationships 
is that it's made me so strong now that nothing deters me anymore. Mm. And I Mm. feel like it is my time now to express to people that it is tough, Mm. but you can get through it because I've been through it, you know, Mm. being a single mom of four children, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm in my 40s and I feel like my life has just begun. So I feel like we have to share these stories for the next generation, but also the older generation. Mm. So in my group, I've got women from the age of 18 to 70 who have become poets and are now, we're going to be reading in the Barnfest on the 23rd of March, for God's sake. And these women are in nearly in their 50s and 60s and mm. have never been on stage. And now almost they've become spoken word artists in the last two years. So there's nothing that can stop you. No, I've I've listened to them and they're absolutely amazing, Halima. You know, your She Spoke project, I think, you know, is going to go places. (laughs) If you could tell something to your 19-year-old self about life, your future, what would you say? Because there could be somebody listening out there and th- there might be not necessarily in your situation. What would you say if you're speaking to your 19-year-old self? Don't be too soft. Mm-hmm. Life is tough, mm-hmm. very tough, but life is also very beautiful. And when one door closes, another one, sometimes more than one, and in my case, probably about 10, 20, mm. always open, mm. always mm. And pain doesn't last forever. Mm, mm, mm. And there is, there is genuinely good humans and love out there in the world. So embrace it. Oh, that is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Anything else you want to say? Uh, I just want to say thank you. And I just think what you're doing is amazing. And I think there should be more and more people's voices, especially women's voices and stories that need to be told and heard and shared. So thank you, Florence. Alima, I think we've just touched on the subject. I think you need to come back again. Anytime, You'll anytime. absolutely amazing. And really good luck with your uh, poetry event thank you. that you're having later on this month. I'm sure you're going to smash it. I hope so. And don't stop. Don't stop at all. Thank you, Florence. So how can people work and join you? Um, Well, we're not taking on any more new people just now, just because we're in the process of getting a book published by the end of the year. But if they want to know more about us, you can go on Strike a Light and um, you will see things that are going on. And there's um, She Spoke event. And there's also the Indian Heritage Project that I'm doing, which starts showcasing in aerospace on the 6th of April. And we'll be traveling till 2023 around 10 Southwest Museums and we'll be coming to Gloucester. and. You know, there's a lot of fascinating things happening this year with Strike Light and whatever I'm producing. So, yeah, keep a lookout. Thank you so much, Alima. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I Migrate the Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share with a friend or subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can even write a review. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode. I Migrate the Podcast is hosted by Florence Nusamo. It is produced by Tyra at Foss Creative Studio and is brought to you by Lives of Colour. <laughs>